0: Over fen and field, where the long grass grows, the west wind comes walking and about the walls it goes. What news from the Praised be Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Today, Saturday, March the 6th. It's a beautiful day here in Eugene, Oregon. Uh, well, it we've got a blue sky at least, and the birds are singing. Uh, not too cold, I'm out for a bit of a walk in a quiet part of the city. In fact, I'm not sure I'm even still in Eugene. I might have left the city limits. It's an area just off of Fox Hollow Road, and... Uh, I'm out here walking uh, on this deserted road Um, and yeah the birds are singing in the trees there's quite a bit of wind kind of picking up and then dying down again in sort of regular intervals so far and I can feel a few occasional raindrops on my face so I'm hoping it doesn't uh, we don't have a repeat of last week where it starts pouring down rain in the middle of the podcast (laughs) Uh, but uh, so far it seems like other than just these few occasional little little kisses from the clouds uh, it seems like it's going to be a nice clear morning so it's nice to get out here for a little while I uh, slept in a little bit today and which I had planned to so it's nice you know if i sleep in when i don't plan to it kind of throws off the whole day (laughs) but if i plan to it's really a nice gift so i got to have a little bit of extra sleep this morning got some good prayer time some exercise and now uh yeah to be out here under the sunlight in the fresh air is a beautiful way to be spending my saturday morning of course later on today we're going to have uh confessions over the church And then we have our Latin Vigil Mass as usual on Saturday nights. But um, that is still hours away, so I have some free time. It's a welcome gift. Uh, Yeah, what's been going on in my week? Uh, Not too much really to report. Um, Let's see. I had my monthly Day of Recollection on Monday, this last Monday, which um, I think I've probably mentioned before. This is a a practice I've been doing all this year in the parish, and I try to take the first Monday of every month, which, of course, Monday is my usual day off, my day of rest, and uh, I try to just take that day and really dedicate it to prayer and reflection, and uh, usually try to go away from the parish someplace. Um, And I've gone different places. I, I haven't really established a regular place that I go to, when i've gone on days of recollection from the seminary uh down in Menlo Park usually i go over to the carmelites they have their monastery in san jose and that that's just nice because of course i know the community i used to live there so they know me and i can just uh just drop in and spend the day there in the cloister it's quiet and i can have plenty of of of, of time and and space you know both physically and interiorly <laughs> for prayer and Um, yeah just to encounter the Lord but it's really necessary you know like um, I think they say for married couples you know you need to make sure you have a a regular date night (laughs) it's kind of similar for priests and seminarians and those in religious life you need to make sure that you set aside an honor time of course daily but also um, at regular intervals A larger amount of time, like a whole day, just to be with the Lord, because of course it's from that time with the Lord that the rest of our life flows. That's what gives fruit to our apostolic labors. That's what uh, keeps the fire of divine love burning in our hearts, so that we're actually able to be, you know, ministers of Christ and people in whom His people can encounter Him. Which is, of course, the whole point of our vocation. So uh, I did that on Monday. I um, hadn't really planned the Day of Recollection in advance and so uh, I, yeah, it wasn't the most fruitful of my Days of Recollection um, because I kind of got a late start and I spent a few hours over at St. Alice Parish which is just the next town over, it's in Springfield. Um, But that was good, had some prayer time there and then I ended up driving out east Uh, along the Mackenzie River to a little retreat house the Dominicans have out there in Mackenzie Bridge. And um, it was my first time being back there, I think since the wildfires that ravaged that whole area last fall and summer. Um, And uh, really striking just to see the damage from the wildfires. You know, even now, we're probably what... uh, like going on six months now since the wildfires, uh, but there's still such devastation, you know, and you can really see. What was most striking for me was to see the places where homes once stood, and now there's no trace except for the, the sort of brick chimneys or the stone chimneys, you know, so you see them standing there all alone, like watchtowers. Um, amongst the, the ruins of homes, or sometimes the ruins have just been cleared away, and you can just sort of see the imprint on the ground of where there was once a building, and then there's this chimney rising up to the sky. So very striking, very sad to see uh, the remains of these places where people once lived. Um, of course, you know, there, as I was driving, there were also crews out there, wildfire, uh relief crews or um, I forget what they what the name on the trucks was but they were clearing away the uh, the brush and the debris um, you know cleaning up the hillsides you can see where stands of trees have just been totally burned away so very interesting fortunately though the retreat house up there was undamaged and uh, so I got to spend also a few hours there uh, later in the afternoon on Monday and just planned out my month Um, i'm still using the monk manual which i heartily recommend to anyone who wants to live uh, their months and weeks and days with a little more purpose and focus and clarity i'm finding it to be such a helpful tool because uh, yeah it incorporates not only it's not just planning in the narrow sense of like you know planning your to-do list and your appointments um, but it's much more. It's reflecting. It, it, it forces you to take time to reflect on the month that has gone by. And then in the planning stage, uh, you're not, not only planning your to-dos, but you plan in terms of your priorities. Um, so you pick your, your you, you really stop and think about what are my top five priorities for the month. okay? And then likewise for the week and the day. Every week you pick three, and then every day you pick three. Uh, uh, your top three priorities for the day and um, yeah and then also you as you for example as you're planning the month uh, you're thinking about what's gonna be one habit that I'm gonna focus on this month Um, what's gonna be what's a question that I want to answer this month it's a very reflective contemplative way of just preparing uh, to use time well and just looking ahead um so i'm always i'm always trying to do this planning and the reflecting process in the context of prayer, really offering it to the Lord, taking time in silence, asking the Lord these questions, and um really discerning what are going to be the priorities for the month so that's that's very fruitful um yeah and it's it's fruitful too to just reflect and look back February was a month in which um there's been a tremendous amount of good that the Lord has been doing for me and with me. And so to give thanks for that, to just see, begin to see the fruits of new habits, new routines, new disciplines, you know, these exodus disciplines are being really good for me. Um, So yeah, that was, uh, although I hadn't planned the day very well, and I think if I had planned it, there probably would have been even more fruit, Um, but even so it was it was a very good day and these days of recollection have been very helpful for me all year long. Well, (laughs) no time has passed for you but I paused this recording just now for about 10 or 15 minutes. I had the most interesting conversation with someone I just met on the road. (laughs) Saw this guy walking as I was driving down here and uh, he waved at me so we stopped and talked for a while and funniest thing uh, it's amazing the connections you find with people but uh, <laughs> as you know he was asking uh, what I do and where I'm from I was talking about being a seminarian over at St. Mary's and uh, we have a priest at St. Mary's who used to be an Episcopal priest who converted to become Catholic and this guy I just met on the road Knows that guy because he used to be one of his former parishioners at the Episcopal Church. So great connection. We had a wonderful conversation, and uh, moments like this are just such great blessings. Moments when uh, you find an unexpected connection out on the road. <laughs> it's such uh, I don't know. These are such tangible moments of the Lord's providence. Like God just orchestrates these connections. I had a teacher once who said, God loves to introduce his friends to each other. (laughs) Which I'm finding to be true. Anyway, I'm going uphill now. So, um, my breathing might be a bit labored. Sorry that you have to endure it. But, uh, yeah, what else? I forget what I told you. I think I was just talking about my Day of Recollection. Otherwise, this week, In my class at the seminary, I've been doing a lot of, we've been dealing a lot with borrowing money, (laughs) saving money, investing money, policies for taking on debt and just, and um, like legal requirements for the parish as a corporation and when you have to consult your board of directors (laughs) and, you know, just things like that. I sat with our business manager here at St. Mary's the other day for an afternoon, and was just uh, going through the books with her and uh, learning about payroll <laughs> and how she you know, logs the offertory collections and all this sort of thing. And to quote the business manager, she said, um, this is not the fun part of running a parish. And with all respect to her, and to her job, I I can't disagree. However, of course, it's essential. Without this stuff, we wouldn't have a parish, you know? The way we know it, anyway. Um, So, yeah. uh, (laughs) It has reinforced for me the conviction of the need to have a good business manager and a good bookkeeper but also as the pastor, you're the one who's responsible. Ultimately, the buck stops with the pastor. You know, you're the one responsible for everything the parish owns, all the assets, all the debts. Um, so you also have to have a good grasp of this stuff yourself. It's not enough just to have a good business manager. You have to kind of keep, keep on top of what's going on, and because you're the one who's going to have to make decisions. So it's good to get this information now. It's uh, a bit tiresome, you know, I've the other day had a headache uh, at the end of the day because I had just been reading about our diocesan insurance policies for hours on end. But um, it's good, it's good to be learning it all now. Other than that, let's see, I was was teaching again this week, uh, the seventh graders. Oh, one resolution I made on my day of recollection is... To set aside a few hours on Friday mornings um, as teaching and preaching prep time for the next week. You know, I've been finding recently that, um, because I'm doing a lot of teaching, uh, teaching the RCIA every week, teaching the 7th graders every week, Um, and preaching regularly, you know, not every week, but once or twice a month. And uh, sometimes other things come up, too, or I have to prepare something to say. And I've just been finding recently, um, like I had mentioned on this podcast before, I think, uh, for one thing, the Lord is leading me to just do this kind of thing, teaching, preaching, in a more surrendered way, and not over-prepare. On the other hand, though, um, several times, it's gotten to be the day before or the day of, And I've had nothing really ready, (laughs) and the Lord has blessed that, but it's not the way I'd prefer to work. You know, I'd prefer um, to have more of, at least to have, you know, encountered the text I'm going to preach on or wrestled with it and prayed over it and stuff beforehand. So I'm setting aside the Friday mornings to prepare for whatever lessons or reflections I'm going to give in the week to come. I did it for the first time yesterday. It was really fruitful. Um... Yeah, it took about two, maybe two and a half hours. And uh, yeah, I was just meditating on the texts for Sunday, um, looking at the first scrutiny for the RCIA. We're gonna have that rite on Sunday morning. The scrutinies are these rites where um, they've gone through a lot of evolutions in the history of the church, but basically as they currently exist, it's a, it's a special moment when the candidates and catechumens, in the context of Mass, are prayed over by the priest, and the congregation prays for them as well um, to be scrutinized by the Lord, <laughs> to for the Lord to search their hearts. Um, and there's a beautiful description of the purpose of those rites in the RCIA book, and it's something like, you know, to reveal to bring to light and to heal all that is broken, all that is sinful, all that is weak in the hearts of the candidates, and to reveal and to strengthen all that is good, all that is virtuous. Uh, and so basically, you know, these guys are and, and women are getting near the end of their process of conversion um, in a certain sense. And so the, the purpose of the scrutiny is just really to to strengthen what has already begun to bring it to completion to uproot what needs uprooting to heal what needs healing um yeah and so it's a really a beautiful rite there's special readings that go with it outside the normal cycle of readings. so with that mass on sunday we're going to read uh, for the gospel we're going to read the story of the woman at the well the samaritan woman which is so beautiful because In it, the Lord scrutinizes her heart (laughs) in a beautiful way. And she leaves, you know, crying out with joy, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. So, yeah, yesterday I just spent some time reflecting uh, on that, that gospel and the other readings in the context of this rite, thinking about what are some questions I can ask the candidates to prompt some discussion, what uh, is the Lord asking me to speak, you know, into their lives this week uh, in the context of their coming conversion, soon to be baptized and received into full communion. And then also I'm going to be preaching next Thursday, so I spent some time reading over those texts, reading some good commentaries, and uh, just kind of steeping myself in the text. You know, I haven't written any notes yet, but just to encounter the text, to encounter the Lord's Word, and start reflecting on it and praying over it. Um, It's really helpful to do that even a week in advance. And I'll have time, you know, preaching Thursday. I'll have time all the way up till Wednesday to write some notes and jot down some ideas. Um, But it's helpful to have this block of time set aside and try to be faithful to it every week just to get kind of a head start on the week to come. So anyway, that is enough, probably more than enough about my life. Let's jump in to talk about Tolkien because boy, do I have a lot to say this week. If I take one more step, it'll be the farthest away from home. I've ever been. Fool of a took. Throw yourself in next time and rid us of your stupidity. So I learned from this guy, Ron, that I was talking to on the road a while ago that uh, this place where I'm walking, it's called Christensen Road, and uh, it's a county road now. So I think I am outside of Eugene a little bit, but all of this, is, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's like a little mountain road that winds down into this valley. And all of this valley, at one time, used to be the Christiansen Cattle Ranch, I think he said. And uh, apparently this, this, this cattle was famous nationwide at a certain time. Um, and now the ranch is still here, but it's reduced. So at the very end of the road, there's a gate And uh, that marks the the border of their property, the ranch. And then all along the road now, it's been parceled out and people own different plots of land. But, um, yeah, I can imagine what this land must have been like when it was all part of the cattle ranch. (laughs) It still has a wild beauty about it. And uh, But for this road that I'm walking on, I could almost be in Middle Earth myself. (laughs) It looks like something you would encounter, I don't know, not exactly in the Shire, but somewhere in that region, maybe near Bree. <laughs> you can hear the birds singing and yeah, there's a very mossy old trees all along both sides of the road, sort of gnarled, uh, but not evil. not They don't look like trees from Mirkwood. They're more like trees from Fangorn Forest. Very treeish. <laughs> Before we jump into Middle Earth, though, and the two towers, I want to take a little time to talk about um, an essay from Tolkien and then some letters of his that I've been reading. The last few weeks, I've really neglected the letters on these podcasts, but I've still been reading them, and there are a lot of gems in the most recent ones. First of all, though, this week, um, I read the essay by Tolkien called On Fairy Stories, this is a very well-known essay at least in sort of literary <laughs> criticism circles or you know Tolkieniana circles <laughs> among fans of Tolkien um this is very famous and um in it so this is not a work of fiction it's a it's a work of literary criticism uh or literary theory and basically he is trying to arrive at a at a uh an adequate definition of what a fairy story is—not a fairy tale, but a fairy story. For Tolkien, I think *The Lord of the Rings* is, you know, a fairy story. Um, but this is not primarily. So he he wants to broaden the definition from the very beginning, not just a story about fairies, not not just kind of a, uh, you know, the Beatrix Potter stories or like uh, a. Uh, Oh, something like Puss in Boots, or, you know, these old tales that are told to children. Um, Rather, he says, a fairy story is a story that opens up into the world of fairy, which is distinct from the primary world, what we would call the real world. And uh, this is where, in this essay, he advances his well-known theory of sub-creation. Literature as sub-creation. And as best as I can recreate it from memory, the point he basically makes is this. Um, He says, in literature, and in in, in fairy stories especially, in fantasy, uh, where the author is really engaged in sub-creation, what you have as a result is a story which doesn't require a kind of a suspension of disbelief. And that's a term that we hear a lot these days. Um, You know, he points out, for example, in drama, in stagecraft, uh, if you have a play with talking animals, with actors dressed up as talking animals that that requires suspension of disbelief <laughs> on a grand scale because uh, you know <laughs> you have to you have to contradict the evidence of your own eyes and ears to enter into the story um, and that's just one example in any story where you know there's a false note something strikes you as this is not quite right um yeah it stands out to you as unrealistic or you know uh there's stilted dialogue or something like that you know oh, that's where the suspension of disbelief is required and it's as far as i can understand tolkien's conception of this you know it's a it's a it's a willing act <laughs> where you 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 willingly suspend you hold back your disbelief in the story so as to mm, engage with it, right? But in a, in a true work of sub-creation, a true work of fantasy, a fairy story, well, that's not the case. Because in a, in a, tr- in a true fairy story where the author has engaged in sub-creation, uh, what you encounter in the story is true. It all has the ring of truth for that world. And so, it, it, in a way, the mind can enter into this world, which is not the primary world, but into a, a secondary world, a fantasy world, the world of fairy. <laughs> and there, the mind can roam free and sort of find its rest because everything it encounters there, it sort of hangs together. It's, um, it, it's an integral whole, and it's everything that you that you find there, is true within the boundaries of that world, within the limits of the world. Does that make sense? And so, of course, as we've talked about, I think, in a prior episode of this podcast, the whole notion of sub-creation is man is made in the image of God, the creator, and he's stamped with the imago dei, the image of God, which means man is made to be a creator too, but a sub not an independent creator. And so the the, the author, like Tolkien, who engages in a work of subcreation. Well, he creates a secondary world, um, but it's not just out of whole cloth. It's derived from the primary world. And so what the mind of the reader finds within this secondary world, which is true within that world, well, it also it bears the, the ring, the stamp of truth that we know from our primary world. And so he writes in the Essay on Fairy Stories, you know, it, it's, it's one thing to say the words, you know, the green sun, for example, that's just imagination, uh, which is nothing to be scoffed at, <laughs> but it's not subcreation. It's not fantasy. It's you, anyone can say the green sun, speaking of the sun in the sky, you know, and you have a picture of it in your mind, but that's not subcreation. You, subcreation involves you create this whole world, and you you create you create what, what what kind of a world would it be with a green sun, you know, and. Uh, it's an, it's an art. He doesn't really advance principles or rules or guidelines for how to go about this. It's an art. Uh, but the, the artist of subcreation, the fruit of it is a world in which the mind can roam free and find its rest. And uh, part of this process too, which is very interesting, this is another notion that Tolkien fans and scholars will be very familiar with, is his notion of eucatastrophe, eucatastrophe. Which comes from the Greek, of course, and uh, he, it's distinguished from discatastrophe. <laughs> so we normally think of any catastrophe as, you know, just in general, as what Tolkien means by a discatastrophe, a catastrophic event that sort of brings about ruin and destruction. Um, but in a fairy story, uh, a true fairy story for Tolkien must end in a kind of "you catastrophe. And the point of a catastrophe is, to all appearances, it's a failure, and yet, uh, through a kind of a subversion of expectations and even of appearances, it brings about a great good. It brings about a victory. Now, I'm not going to spoil anything about the Lord of the Rings here, because many of you who are listening might be reading it now with me for the first time. But keep an eye out as we read the Lord of the Rings, and just see if, uh, as we draw nearer to the close of the story, if Tolkien's theory of eucatastrophe holds up in The Lord of the Rings or not? That will be an interesting question to ask. And he has an epilogue about the Gospels at the end of this essay, which is very interesting. And this is uh, one final well-known quote from Tolkien from this essay. In the epilogue on the Gospels, he says that the Gospel is the one true myth. It's sort of the one true fairy story, if you want. Because, of course, the gospel, all, the, all four of the gospels end with a catastrophe. I mean, the crucifixion, the passion, the death of Jesus, um, catastrophic. And yet, it's precisely through this, that the, the, through which comes the resurrection, you know, and the Lord's victory, all of creation, redeemed, restored, renewed, Uh, The final defeat of sin and death and Satan comes about through a catastrophe, a catastrophe. And uh, so, (laughs) Tolkien speaks very beautifully. I recommend you can go read this, if you like, on Fairy Stories. You can, I think, probably find it online. I have it in a book called The Tolkien Reader, where you can find it as well. And, uh, yeah, just to hear how he speaks about the Gospels. And now, you can imagine an objection to this would be... um, well, who's, who's to say that this is the one true myth, you know, the one true fairy story? If Tolkien is pointing out these characteristics that fairy stories have, um, then it would make sense that the Gospels just sort of follow the pattern. You know, humans are just the kind of storytelling creatures who make stories like this and are satisfied by them. But I, I, I would uh, argue against that perspective Simply by saying it starts that 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 perspective starts from a certain premise, (laughs) namely that you know man is the measure of all things and human beings are the ones who um, you know just have sort of some innate behaviors for no reason. We just sort of like to do certain things and therefore we do them. But on the other hand, I would say, what if uh, the reason that as human beings we have a desire? for a kind of another world, a fantasy in which we can take our rest, in which our minds can roam free, in which we can encounter the truth. And we have apparently a sort of a a predisposition to want to see a you catastrophe. You know, not just a happy ending, but an apparently um, apparently catastrophic ending that brings about an unexpected and uh, all-surpassing, result of great good. What if the reason that we have that desire written to our hearts in a certain way? Is because this is the way God has made creation. This is the way that God has made us so that our hearts long for the kind of fulfillment that He intends in His divine providence to bring about. And and if we look at it from that perspective, we would say, well, of course, we love stories like this because we're caught up in this kind of story simply by virtue of being human. We are all caught up in this divine drama, this divine drama, the kind of a divine fantasy, you know, not of man's making, but of God's own wisdom. And of course, we're not just made for this world, the so-called real world uh, of this primary reality that we experience we are made for a kind of a secondary world, which is beyond our experience now, but we're ultimately made for heaven. And so it makes sense that our hearts long to find rest in another world and to roam free there, that we uh, that we long for this kind of escape. You know, Tolkien rails against people who say fantasy is just a tool of escapism. And he says, uh, um, such people never seem to, to question uh, their own assumption that uh, escape from a prison is to be understood uh, as the same sort of thing as flight from a battle, you know. So when they talk about escapism, they seem to mean something like fleeing from a battle, and they treat the one who wants to escape with the scorn reserved for a deserter. <laughs> but he points out rather than flight from a battle, um, the escapism of fantasy is an escape from a prison, you know. Uh, and who can begrudge the man unjustly imprisoned? who seeks to escape and roam free upon the fields. So it's a great essay. I thought I had read it before and after a few pages I realized I had never gotten past the beginning. (laughs) So I read it over the course of a few days this week and profited from it immensely and I recommend it to all of you if you're interested in these sorts of things you can check it out on Fairy Stories. Now I also wanted to share with you a few choice quotes from some of Tolkien's letters and Fortunately, I have them here on the Kindle app on my phone. By the way, as a tip for all of you, if you're interested in doing this Tolkien project and maybe you've held off on buying the books, Amazon has a subscription service called Kindle Unlimited. Now, it's $10 a month, but you could just get it for, you know, a few months during this project and cancel it. And the first month is free. And all of Tolkien's books are included in Kindle Unlimited. So if you're looking at the list of books and thinking that's a pretty hefty price tag <laughs> to buy all these books, well, it might be worth considering if uh, just getting Kindle Unlimited for a few months might be a better a better deal for you. Because you can get all the Lord of the Rings, you can get the Silmarillion, Unfinished Tales, um, the letters, they're all there. So that's, that's what I am using for the time being. Of course, the drawback is that once you cancel Kindle Unlimited, you lose access to the books. So... That's a a drawback, but that is a possibility for you. So, um, looking at the letters here, some of the very best quotes uh, recently are from letters that Tolkien wrote to his son Christopher when uh, he was at war. And also to, I'm sorry, I I think I said Christopher, but I think I meant his son Michael. Michael, his second son, he uh, entered the service in 1939, and then he ended up uh, being, uh, go- going on to be assigned to South Africa. And so there are many letters that we have from Tolkien writing to his son and giving him some fatherly advice. Uh, the first one uh, here is from uh, letter number 40 in the year 1940. Tolkien's writing to Michael and he says, I'm very sorry indeed, dear boy, that your varsity career has been cut in two. It would have been better if you had been the elder and could have finished before the army took you. But I still hope you will be able to come back again, and certainly you will learn a lot first. Though in times of peace, we get perhaps, and naturally, and for the purpose rightly, too engrossed in thinking of everything as a preparation, or a training, or a making one fit. For what? At any minute, it is what we are and are doing, not what we plan to be and do, that counts. But he says, I cannot pretend that I myself found that idea much comfort against the waste of time and militarism of the army. It isn't the tough stuff one minds so much. I was pitched into it all just when I was full of stuff to write and of things to learn and never picked it all up again. So this is a father's lament over his son being pulled out of the university where he ought to be at that time, you know, being just learning and encountering things and forced to go into the military. Of course, this time it was still peacetime, but there's this sense that wars are on the horizon. And so I like what he says there about, uh, yeah, in peacetime, um, the mind can become too engrossed in thinking everything is a, a training, everything's a preparation, but you don't quite know what for. It's this gentle fatherly reminder to... Just be attentive to who and what we are and what we're doing in the moment and not to cast our minds too far ahead to the future. Um, there can be a temptation to just live in the future. And, uh, well, it's almost a cliche to say so, but uh, if we live too much in the future, we run at risk of missing what's right under our noses right now. And, uh, yeah, I had a friend in seminary who would say sometimes... Um, if only we knew during the day that these are the days about which one day we would say, ah, those were the days. <laughs> so there's something there, you know. If we live too much in the future, we miss the day right now, and one day we'll look back with nostalgia and longing and think, ah, those were the days. So I like that from Tolkien. Another one that uh, he says to his son is, this is just excellent. Uh, he's giving him some advice here about Um, faith and the practice of the faith even in the midst of the very difficult circumstances of you know military service and being there in south africa and this is a famous quote i've seen before shared on social media and in different places but tolkien writes at the end of a long letter to michael out of the darkness of my life so much frustrated i put before you the one great thing to love on earth The blessed sacrament. There you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves upon earth. And more than that, death. By the divine paradox, that which ends life and demands the surrender of all, and yet by the taste or foretaste of which alone can what you seek in your earthly relationships, love, faithfulness, joy, be maintained, or take on that complexion of reality, of eternal endurance, which every man's heart desires. Isn't that just piercing, beautiful? And, you know, we don't know, we don't have Michael's letters to his father. We just have Tolkien's letters to Michael. So, But you can sort of infer from the rest of Tolkien's letter of the sorts of things that his son is struggling with, that he's writing to Tolkien about, because the father is telling his son in this letter sort of about his own life story. And, you know, as he says, my life in which has been so much frustrated. He writes about, yeah, his frustrations in the past, in romance and in um, the, his own military service and... And you can imagine, you know, he's seeing just with fatherly compassion these longings in his son's heart that he himself knows so well for romance, for love, for glory, for joy, for valor. And this this is his last advice, this is the end of the letter. I put before you the one great thing to love on earth, the blessed sacrament. There you will find all the things your heart longs for. With the character of this eternal endurance that every man's heart desires so deeply, no one just wants to be happy for a time. You want you want eternal happiness. Everyone, you don't just want to be loved for a season. You want you want love that will last forever and only grow greater and greater. And this is, Tolkien places the blessed sacrament here in this letter as, as into a monstrance before his son for his adoration and prayer. Beautiful. Another great quote here. This is from a later letter, letter 52. And, uh, He's been talking about, oh, just talking about the war and politics. And he ends by saying, well, cheers and all that to you, dearest son. Cheers and all that. (laughs) I love it. We were born in a dark age, out of due time for us. But there is this comfort. Otherwise, we should not know or so much love what we do love. I imagine the fish out of water is the only fish to have an inkling of water. Also, we have still small swords to use. Quote, I will not bow before the iron crown, nor cast my own small golden scepter down. Which are two lines from a poem that Tolkien had written called Mytho, Mythopoeia. I love that. <laughs> it's only the fish born, <laughs> if only the fish out of water that has any inkling of water, you know. So, although. Um, Tolkien himself and Michael, presumably, feel that they sort of were born at the wrong time. <laughs> you know, you can make a case for it. Um, they would be more at home in an earlier age. But uh, he, he points out this comfort that they have, which is because of the darkness of their age. Um, they love the things they do love that much more. The, the, great, the great virtues of the past, things almost forgotten. Um, almost by contrast, you know, they shine more brightly, and they're they're more beloved in their own hearts, which is good for us to remember too, in uh, the darkness of our own days. It's not by accident that we're born in this time. Another piece of advice he gives to Michael, if you cannot achieve inward peace, and it is given to few to do so, least of all to me, in tribulation, Do not forget that the aspiration for it is not a vanity, but a concrete act. Simply to desire peace is a concrete act. That is a great reminder, that's wise. And he adds this, if you don't do so already, make a habit of the praises. I use them much in Latin. (laughs) The Gloria Patri, the Gloria in Excelsis, the Laudate Dominum, the Laudate Pueri Dominum of which I am especially fond, one of the Sunday Psalms and the Magnificat, also the Litany of Loreto with the prayer Subtuum Presidium. If you have these by heart, you never need for words of joy. It is also a good and admirable thing to know by heart the canon of the Mass, for you can say this in your heart if ever hard circumstances keeps you from hearing Mass. So endeth Fazer lar his <laughs> So ends the father to his son. <laughs> I don't know if I pronounced that right or not. It's old English. Uh fantastic. So it's it I I love seeing these glimpses of just Tolkien's devout manly catholicism, you know. He's just formed by this catholic sensibility and Yeah, you'll never lack for words of praise if you memorize the church's hymns of praise and the words of the scriptures, you know. I love that he praised them in Latin. (laughs) There's a story about Tolkien that, um, I think it was Tolkien. Well, actually, no, it wouldn't have been. He would have died before the reforms of the Second Vatican Council. Maybe it was somebody else. But I remember hearing the story about, I thought it was him. I don't know, Someone. So, some English person, who was a, a, a writer, at least, if it wasn't Tolkien himself, who, after the vernacularization of the Mass, insisted on continuing going to the Mass and making the responses loudly in Latin <laughs> when everyone else was responding in English. <laughs> and even if it wasn't Tolkien who did this, it certainly seemed like something he would have done. <laughs> okay, anything else here I wanted to share? There's just so many great little anecdotes. I'm going to give you two anecdotes. One is about CS Lewis. He writes this is in letter 56, writing again, writing now to his son Christopher. He says, "Lewis is as energetic and jolly as ever, but getting too much publicity for his or any of our tastes, Peter Brough, usually fairly reasonable, did him the doubtful honor of a peculiarly misrepresentative and asinine paragraph in the Daily Telegraph of Tuesday Last. It began, quote, ascetic Mr. Lewis. <laughs> I ask you. He put away three pints in a very short session we had this morning, and said he was, quote, going short for Lent. <laughs> Great to just get a glimpse into their friendship, it's funny. And here's another one. Um, He encountered an American on a train. And uh, he says, I found myself in a carriage occupied by an RAF officer, this war's wings, who had been to South Africa, though he looked a bit elderly, and a very nice young American officer, New Englander. I stood the hot air they let off as long as I could, but when I heard the Yank burbling about feudalism and its results on English class distinctions and social behavior, I opened a broadside. The poor boob had not, of course, the very faintest notions about feudalism or history at all, being a chemical engineer. But you can't knock feudalism out of an American's head, any more than the, quote, Oxford accent. He was impressed, I think, when I said that an Englishman's relations with porters, butlers, and tradesmen had as much connection with feudalism as skyscrapers had with red Indian wigwams, or ticking off one's hat to a lady has with the modern methods of collecting income tax. But I am certain he was not convinced. I did, however, get a dim notion into his head that the Oxford accent, by which he politely told me, he meant mine, was not forced and put on, but a natural one, learned in the nursery, and was moreover not feudal or aristocratic, but a very middle-class bourgeois invention. After I told him that his accent sounded to me like English after being wiped over with a dirty sponge, and generally suggested falsely to an English observer that together with American slouch it indicated a slovenly and ill-disciplined people, well, we got quite friendly. <laughs> we had some bad coffee in the refreshment room and parted. I love it. <laughs> Tolkien is just such a delightful, delightful person. <laughs> and then he's talking about strolling around his old hometown. I, I guess he'd gone over to Oxford. Um, and he says, uh, except for one patch of ghastly wreckage, it does not look much damaged. Not by the enemy. I guess it had been bombed. But he says, the chief damage has been the growth of great, flat, featureless, modern buildings. I won't weary you with impressions of the ghastly, utterly third-rate new school buildings. But if you can imagine a building better than most Oxford colleges, excuse me, being replaced by what looks like a girls' council school, you've got it. And my feelings. (laughs) Oh, I love him. Anything else here I wanted to share? Uh, There's many quotes that I have uh, highlighted. Oh, here's one about the great divorce, this wonderful uh, allegory written by C.S. Lewis. Very celebrated, very popular in Christian circles. Tolkien says about it, just as a throwaway line, I did not think so well of the concluding chapter of CSL's new moral allegory or vision, based on the medieval fancy of the refrigerium by which the lost souls have an occasional holiday in paradise. I love his just, uh, studied disdain toward allegory wherever he finds it. Okay, um... There's much more that I could share. I'm skipping over many of these quotes that I've highlighted because simply I don't want to take the time, but I hope you're getting a sense from these of Tolkien's uh, personality and character as a man, not just as, a, not just as the author of The Lord of the Rings. Oh, here's one last one that I just have to share. I found this one this morning, and uh, it's relevant because this conversation I just had with this guy on the road Um, included us talking for a little while about sermons and the general quality or lack thereof. He mentioned that after our mutual friend Father Bryce had left his former Episcopal parish and come over to the Catholic Church that he and his wife, this guy I met, and his wife had spent some time looking for another church to go to in this area but they had despaired of ever finding one because the quality of sermons was so bad and he said uh, they had been spoiled maybe by by, by Father Bryce but uh, he was telling me about one church where the pastor would preach for an hour and first he would tell you the point and then he would tell it to you again in different words and then he'd mix all the words up and tell it to you a third time and he said by the third time it was almost insulting that he thought so little of our intelligence that he, he felt he had to tell us three times in different words to hope that we would get the point. So here's Tolkien's words about sermons. He's writing now to his son Christopher. This is letter 63. He says, uh, As for sermons, they are bad, aren't they? <laughs> Most of them, from any point of view. The answer to the mystery is probably not simple, but part of it is that rhetoric, of which preaching is a department, is an art which requires a some native talent and b learning and practice. The instrument used is very much more complex than a piano, yet most performers are in the position of a man who sits down to a piano and expects to move his audience without any knowledge of the notes at all. The art can be learned, granted some modicum of aptitude, and can then be effective in a way, when wholly unconnected with sincerity, sanctity, etc., But preaching is complicated by the fact that we expect in it not only a performance, but truth and sincerity, and also at least no word, tone, or note that suggests the possession of vices such as hypocrisy or vanity, or defects such as folly, ignorance, in the preacher. Good sermons, he says, require some art, some virtue, some knowledge. Real sermons require some special grace, which does not transcend art, but arrives at it by instinct or inspiration. Indeed, the Holy Spirit seems sometimes to speak through a human mouth, providing art, virtue, and insight he does not himself possess. But the occasions are rare. In other times, I don't think an educated person is required to suppress the critical faculty but it should be kept in order by a constant endeavor to apply the truth if any, even in cliche form, to oneself exclusively a difficult exercise he concludes and indeed it is, (laughs) speaking as one who is uh, uh, a novice uh, and just learning this this difficult art of preaching so that, that will suffice again there's much more I could share I'm up to letter 63 now. That was that quote I just read about preaching was from letter 63, the very last one I just read this morning. So um, if you haven't been reading the letters, but this has inspired you, well, feel free to just jump in where we are now at letter 63. Um, they've been a great delight to me so far. All right, now I should spare a few minutes at least to talk about the two towers. So <laughs> since our last podcast, um, we are into, into uh, book three of The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the Lord of the Rings is six books in three volumes. So we're into the second volume called The Two Towers. And we're in book three, which is the first half of The Two Towers. It's a little confusing, I know. So in this first part of The Two Towers, we're, fo- we're not following Frodo and Sam. They've gone off on their own. We don't know where they are. They're heading into Mordor on their own. Instead, we're following uh, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli as they track Merry and Pippin, who, if you remember, were carried away by the orcs, uh, which, which uh, ambushed and attacked their party uh, at the end of the... At the end of the the, uh, the river there, where they were encamped, trying to decide which way to go, you know, whether to go on to Minas Tirith or to go off into Mordor. So the orcs attack. They carried away Merry and Pippin, and Aragorn decides Frodo and Sam. They're on their own. They've they're they've, they're making their own way, and um, his responsibility now is to go back and try to rescue the little hobbits, if he can. So. The Orcs have a great head start, but uh, they pursue them like the wind uh, over all the way through the fields of Rohan, this country that borders gondor and uh, it 's inhabited by uh, great excellent horsemen, this race of people, the Rohirrim, who uh, breed war horses. They're proud people they are the uh, of old they 've been the friends of Gondor, which of course is Aragorn's people and uh, but uh, there's some suspicion lately that maybe they are paying tribute to Mordor. Maybe they've sort of knuckled under, and they're um, even if not willingly, they might be in league with the dark power. So here are our three stalwart companions tracking Merry and Pippin and the great party of orcs across the lands of Rohan. Uh, before they can catch up with the orcs, which already seems an unlikely. A difficult endeavor bordering on the impossible. They meet a group of the Rohirrim riding back across the plains who tell them that they have just encountered a great company of orcs and they've routed them and burned them and not a single one escaped. So they begin to lose heart. And uh, But then we, we get a little while of reading from Pippin and Mary's point of view. <laughs> we see the terrible sufferings they endured as they were being borne away by the orcs And then how, in the wake of this attack by the Rohirrim, they managed to escape. They managed to escape. And uh, the two hobbits escape into Fangorn Forest. This forest, they were warned against ever entering, should they come near it. And in it, they discover... This is the reference I made earlier in the podcast about the very treeish trees <laughs> they discover it's not a place that seems evil but it's a place that's that's dreadfully treeish they can't imagine any creatures but trees surviving there for long there's no animals there's no sound of birds um, there's just these mossy ancient looking trees the whole place just is um, it, it, it's, it seems like a place unsuitable for any other kind of creature but a tree. <laughs> and of course, where else but in this sort of forest would they encounter a creature like Treebeard who comes upon them, an ant. Um, and the ants are this, this wonderful race. They're, this kind of they're, they're shepherds of trees. And uh, Treebeard tells us, well, li- as shepherds become like their sheep, <laughs> and sheep become like their shepherds, so do ants become like trees. And some trees become like ants. So it's a little unclear exactly what the, where the distinction lies between ants and trees, because some trees can sort of wake up and become Entish, and and some ants over time sort of go to sleep, they go into hibernation, they become treeish. Anyway, uh, that is just something fascinating to think about, but <laughs> leaving that aside for the moment. So this ant treebeard finds Merry and Pippin, and at first he wants to stomp on them, because uh, he thinks they might be orcs. He's never seen a hobbit before but his catchphrase is, uh, but let's not be hasty. (laughs) An ant is never hasty. And like, you know, as trees grow over decades, so the thoughts and the words of an ant come slowly. And so fortunately for them, he doesn't crush them underfoot, and he learns from them what a hobbit is. They tell him all about their quest, although they avoid any mention of the ring, not knowing if he's for them or against them. And, um... Interestingly, they learned from Treebeard, he says, I'm not on anyone's side, in so many words, and paraphrase, because no one's quite on my side. <laughs> no one's quite on the side of the forests. So he's sort of a neutral figure, like Tom Bombadil, but he's good, he's neutral good. He, he's, he, he says he's not quite on anyone's side, but there are some uh, <laughs> on whose side he is emphatically not, <laughs> including the orcs, of course, and Saruman and Sauron. And it's interesting, the coming of the hobbits, and telling their tale to Treebeard, it ends up inspiring Treebeard to rally the other Ents, and they go marching off to make war on Isengard and on Saruman. And uh, we later hear that this analogy, the coming of the hobbits, is like the fall of a, a few pebbles that sets off a great avalanche. And so here we see, uh, again, this sort of divine providence, right, <laughs> that we talked about in an earlier episode, where, you know, if not for the. It's also the theme of you, catastrophe, because if not for being kidnapped by the orcs, the hobbits would never have come to Fangorn. But precisely because Saruman sent his orcs to go with, with these orders to go and kidnap hobbits and bring them back to him. Because, uh, you know, <laughs> he knows that a hobbit is carrying the, the one ring, right? But he's not going to tell his orcs that because he fears they'll betray him. So he doesn't give him the whole story. He just says, if you find any hobbits, bring them back to me. So because Saruman sent them and uh, he set this whole thing in motion, well, the orcs don't make it back to Isengard. All they've accomplished is to bring the hobbits, with remarkable speed, <laughs> to the very border of Fangorn Forest. And as a result now, the Ents are, are uh, awakened, and the Ents are going to war, and we're going to see soon uh, what exactly the effects of this are going to be on the Great Walls of Isengard. So, uh, (laughs) that's something very interesting. Um, And then, uh, the next thing that we see is Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli. They encounter, you know, as as they're camped on the borders of Fangorn, they encounter um, this man who they are afraid is Saruman. He's an uh, an elderly man with a white beard you know, and and he, he comes hooded, he has his hood over his head, but they can and he's wearing garments that cover his whole body, but they can just see a little glimpse as he moves of uh, sort of white robes, they see just a flash of white under his outer covering. So they think this is Saruman, the white, you know, the head of the council of, of wizards who has fallen so gravely, who's been corrupted and, you know, thrown his lot in with Sauron. So they're afraid of him, but... It turns out, this is Gandalf. <laughs> this is Gandalf, who they thought had been lost forever in the mines of Moria. We don't get the whole story, but, but uh, we do hear from him a bit about how he survived that deadly encounter with the Balrog. And how now he's sort of risen again as someone new, as a new identity. Um, when, they, when they recognize him in the end and address him as Gandalf, he sort of says, well, that was the name I went by once. (laughs) And he agrees to let them call him by it again. But interestingly, you know, with respect to them misidentifying him as Saruman, he says, well, you could say in a certain sense now that I am Saruman, or at least I am what Saruman ought to have been which is very interesting, and I wonder if as we go on and read the Silmarillion and some of these other tales, it might shed some light on what Gandalf means there. I don't really know. But uh, whatever's happening behind the scenes, Gandalf has returned as something greater than he once was. He, he, he seems to have a greater power, a greater majesty, a greater glory about him. He's no longer Gandalf the Grey. He's now Gandalf the White, the White Rider upon Shadowfax, this great, this great, greatest of horses of Rohan. And so uh, he, he fills them in on what's happened with the hobbits. They've gone off with Treebeard and the Ents to make war on Isengard. And then the company, um, knowing that there's no more now they can do for Merry and Pippin, but that they are safe and they hope to meet them again one day. Well, they all ride off for uh, the capital of Rohan, which name I now cannot remember. Um, and they had there uh, because of a promise they made to Eomer, the young prince of this land, when they met him out on the fields with his men. He loaned them horses on the condition that once they had found news of their friends, Mary and Pippin, they would ride back to return the horses and present themselves to Theoden, the king of the Rohirrim. So they do so. And they find there, their welcome is not quite a warm one. Uh, Theoden the king is um, bent, you know, he, he, under the weight of years, he seems to not have much vigor, much energy left in him. And he's attended by a counselor named Grima, whom all others call Wormtongue. He has this unflattering nickname because he, he, we can see it in action he seems to have sort of bent the will and the intellect of the king around his little finger, you know, and he whispers lies into the ears of Theoden and twists his mind so that this once proud and great king of the horsemen of Rohan uh, is now just a shadow of his former self. And we see how Gandalf deals with him. (laughs) He deals with him miraculously and, and powerfully, he uh, throws off, you know, his, his outer cloak, revealing the dazzling splendor of his white garments, sort of like Jesus at the transfiguration, you know. Uh, and he he proclaims, "I have not come across great lands and through many dangers to bandy witless words with a serving man. <laughs> Be silent." And he. As he raises his staff, thunder rolls and breaks and a darkness seems to come over the hall and Grima falls sprawling face first on the ground and is made silent. And as soon as, as, soon as Grima is taken away, the whole demeanor character of Feoden changes. And where at first he was cold and unwelcoming and uh, bitter, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and uh, sort of resistant... To any change, or, or, or you know, anything that these unwelcome guests might have to say. Well, now all of a sudden we see the return of his former strength, of his uh, his vigor and his valor, and we see we see the king emerge. You know, no longer just the figurehead. So, um, oh, and then I should just add, uh, after conversing with Gandalf and these other visitors. Uh, Théoden decides to take the Rohirrim to war to make an attack upon Isengard uh, to dr- try to drive the orcs away from their borders to uh, take a stand and he does so. They go to war. There's a great battle at Helm's Deep which is uh, very exciting and ultimately the battle is won because again the, the, so the orcs come and they press the Rohirrim, and all, seem, all hope seems to be lost. They're kind of backed up into these caves. They decide to make a final push, you know, a final, a final sally forth. They ride out at, at dawn, and then um, as they ride forth, what they discover is the orcs are trapped in the valley between them pushing forward on one hand, and on the other side uh, other reinforcements have arrived along with this forest <laughs> that seems to have sprung up overnight. And of course it's the ants, the ants, who have shepherded their trees and they have themselves have gone to war. And so the Orcs are caught fast and they're forced to flee into the forest from which none of them ever emerge again. So that's a summary of the last several chapters Now, the theme I wanted to discuss this through, and I'll be brief because I've already gone too long, is the theme of hiddenness. And you can see several examples, even in the summary I just gave. You know, um, Gandalf appears to them hidden, right? And, and, And they mistake him at first for Saruman. He comes to them with his glory, his majesty, even his true identity, veiled under deceptive garments you know. And then likewise, um, the hobbits, they don't intend to deceive, but they initially are mistaken by Treebeard for small orcs, (laughs) because he's never encountered the like of them before. So the truth of their identity is hidden from him, because he's ignorant that this race of halflings even exists. You know, he says it's not in the old lists. He knows about elves and men uh, and orcs and ants, Uh, but of hobbits he knows nothing. So there's a hiddenness there, which is not intentional, but the truth of them is hidden from his sight, from his awareness. And then, uh, um, likewise, in a certain way, uh, there's a a hiddenness at play with Grima, Wormtongue, and Theoden, the king. Uh, And this is a little bit harder to parse out, but. You know, on the one hand, the, 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 the truth of who Grima is, is hidden from Theoden. Because this is his trusted counselor, his confidant, and he says at one time he was a man. <laughs> you know, and he still is in a certain sense of the word, but at one time this was a man of Rohan, a trustworthy man. And over time he's become corrupted, he's gone into the service of Saruman. And his words are no longer trustworthy, but Theoden is, has fallen under his spell. And although everyone else in Rohan seems to see him for what he is, Theoden still sees in him you know, his, his, his one most trusted advisor, his greatest counselor, the one who stood by him. And so he, the, the reality of Grima, who has changed, is hidden from his sight because he is predisposed, prejudiced to see him in a certain light. Um, He he looks at Grima and sees the man he once was, perhaps, but not who he now is. And likewise, we see um, Theoden himself. (laughs) The truth of who he is is hidden perhaps even from himself and certainly from the people of Rohan. And it's hidden under this outward appearance and even an inward kind of a guise of uh, the decrepit, elderly, vulnerable, and... uh, you know the king passed his prime the old man and uh grima has sort of woven this spell <laughs> over him you know and, and uh, we don't know if it's like actually magic or if it's just uh kind of the effect of years of of ill counsel but uh it seems more likely the latter but um in, in any case you know, Grima has kind of created this situation where um, the truth of the king is, is hidden and he doesn't even seem to know his own strength and the people don't know his strength. They honor him, they love him, he's their king, but everyone is shocked <laughs> when he gives the call to go to war and he is the one who's going to lead them into battle. And then of course the the men are galvanized, you know, and the armies, a new hope surges through them when they discover that their king, who they thought was Almost dead, all of a sudden is filled with new strength himself and is leading the charge. but uh, that aspect of him was veiled, was hidden again, even I think from his own sight, it was almost lost until Gandalf comes and sort of breathes upon that ember and he takes so he sends Grima away you know if you think. Um, There's the parable in in the Gospel of uh, a a lamp that you put under a bushel basket, you know. And I just taught about it to the seventh graders. It's a polyvalent parable, there's lots of different readings, but one thing to consider is, I think if you put a lamp under a basket, sooner or later it's going to go out. (laughs) You know, it's going to cut off the oxygen, the flame is going to go out. So Gandalf comes, if you want, he takes off the basket, you know, he throws Grima out, (laughs) who's been smothering the king, really and then just breathes upon this ember, and, and, and it leaps back into a flame, burning steadfast and strong. So this motif of hiddenness is showing up several times in these most recent chapters. Just interesting to think about from the perspective of Tolkien's Catholicism, you know, which is so clear from his letters that I've been sharing with you. Because, um, well, as, this, as, as the prophet Isaiah says, um, Vere tues Deus absconditus, Deus Israel salvator. Truly thou art a hidden God, O God of Israel, the Savior. Uh, our God is a God who hides himself. <laughs> and it's interesting to just consider that. And, of course, the ultimate place that he hides himself is in the Eucharist, the Blessed Sacrament. Um, It's mind-boggling, you know, it's a divine paradox, as Tolkien says. To consider that this is God, the creator of the universe, and he veils himself under the form of bread. What? (laughs) How could this be? Of course, it's a continuation of the divine paradox, the original paradox of the Incarnation. To consider that God becomes man is already a scandal, you know, it's, it's, um, it's outrageous. That God should become a man, he puts on our human nature, unites himself to our humanity, becomes one of us, a human being, a creature, the creator but but and that already is is so miraculous and you know it 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 may uh, <sighs> we wonder at it but then to consider. God doesn't stop there. He makes himself a little morsel of bread, like St. John Paul II says in a wonderful poem, more real than the universe. A morsel of bread more real than the universe, because it is God at the at the deepest level of its substance, you know, beneath the appearances which veil it, the substance. This is God. This bread is God. <laughs> what? Yes. And when we gaze upon The Eucharist in adoration, in the monstrance. We see the face of God hidden, yes, veiled. And yet in being veiled for us, it's revealed to us. There's a beautiful mystery there we can contemplate for our whole lives and on into eternity. It reminds me of a conversation I had once with a group of seminarians where we were taken for a tour of uh, Oregon Catholic Press, OCP, this publishing house up in Portland. They publish hymnals, they publish like the Breaking Bread books and different things. And so as part of a summer program we were doing, we just had a little tour there. And um, someone who works for OCP came up to our group and uh, I think he sort of wanted to stump us, you know, he has a question for us, and he says, uh, he says, yeah, I've been working on a translation of, of this hymn, or I've been working, I don't know if it's a translation, I've been working on this hymn, and, um, yeah, the author of the hymn says that God hides himself, God hides himself like that, and what do you guys think about that? <laughs> because I don't think our God hides himself, God reveals himself, he wants us to know him, Right? I don't know if he was trying to stump us or if he, really had, if he really had this question. As I remember it, it was sort of an ironic question. He's like, yeah, right? <laughs> but um, <laughs> I was bold, and I said to him, well, St. Thomas Aquinas would disagree because he says um, in his great hymn, Pange Lingua, he says, um, God had here in hiding whom I do adore. God had here in hiding. This is uh, referring, of course, to the Eucharist, whom I do adore. So we know this is God's pattern with us. He hides him. He veils himself. And thereby he reveals himself to us, but he wills to come to us hidden, right? And uh, so it's interesting to consider uh, why. <laughs> and there are many possible reasons. One is, you know, um, the glory, to see the glory of God unveiled is sort of more than we could handle even the Greeks had a notion of this, you know, in, in the, in the ancient world, there was a notion like that the, the pagan gods would come down off of Olympus and they take on a human form or the form of an animal, because if a mortal was to see the God as they are, we would tur- burn up, we'd turn to dust, you know, <laughs> there's even a story where I think Zeus comes down and, you know, he, he, uh, wants to woo this mortal woman and he says, anything you ask, I'll give you. And uh, he makes this promise and she says, well, grant me to see you as you are. And uh, he's bound by his word. He doesn't want to, but he gives her a glimpse of him as he really is and she burns up. There's nothing left. So even the Greeks had this notion, right? And in the Old Testament, we see, you know, um, uh, Moses, you know, he wants to have a glimpse of God. So God says, well, t- turn your back <laughs> and I'll pass by and you'll hear me. And, and then you can you can you can sort of see my back as I go around you. But I will not let you see my face. And then we, we it's just this continual development where... Um, And it culminates in Jesus, where God becomes incarnate in a man. He he takes on human nature. He becomes a human being. In the face of Jesus, we see the face of God. He's the God-man. He's God. Yes, he is veiled. But it's it's a kind of a mediation, where this is a way we can see God, and we can encounter Him, we can understand. Um, This is God mediating Himself to us. He's coming to us in a way that we can receive Him. We can see his face in Jesus. And, and likewise in the Eucharist. We can gaze upon the face of God in the Eucharist, revealed for our adoration in the monstrance. And we don't turn to dust, you know, we're not burned up. Um, rather, we're glorified. There's a wonderful saying about Eucharistic adoration. I forget the source, but they say, you know, um, no man can sit in the sun and not be warmed. And likewise, no one can pray before the Holy Eucharist. Uh, in the radiance of the very face of Christ, and not himself be transformed, you know. And so our prayer before the Blessed Sacrament, when we pray in Eucharistic adoration, um, you know, in a sense, it doesn't even matter what we do <laughs> in that time of prayer. Um, simply being faithful to it, just to being in the presence, and how blessed we are that God gives His presence to us this way. Well, we begin to be transformed into His likeness. We take on His radiance. We become. Christified, as a professor of mine loves to say, we become more and more like Christ, like the one we adore. So we're far afield now from the topic of hiddenness in the Lord of the Rings, and uh, we're well into theology. <laughs> so <laughs> you know what I think I'll do? I think I will just end the podcast here, because we're over an hour, I'm sure. I've talked for a long time, and uh I don't think I'm gonna say anything more valuable than I've already said. So, plus, uh, let's see, what time is it? It's going on one o'clock, so I've gotta head home, gotta record and post this podcast, and very crucially, I have to get something to eat before (laughs) heading over to the church to begin this afternoon's duties because uh, I have to be over there at 2.30, and once I'm there, I won't be home till 7.30 at least, so gotta get a bite before then. Well, my friends, God bless you. This has been such a joy to be out for this walk uh, with you, quote-unquote. Of course, uh, I don't get the benefit of, of hearing your responses to the things I'm saying, but I do feel in a certain way like all of you listening are present here with me when I record these podcasts. And I uh, hope that you have a great Saturday or whatever day you're listening to this on. I hope your Lent is continuing along well. And uh, we're almost halfway through Lent, give or take. Um, So probably the initial fervor has worn off (laughs) because Lent is long. But uh, I pray that you receive a second wind from the Lord. Keep your eyes fixed on the goal, which is that Easter joy. Think of uh, how sweet it will be to celebrate the great mysteries of Holy Week and Easter as we come to the end of this Lenten season of discipline and asceticism and fasting. Keep your eyes fixed on that glory, on that joy for which we strive. My friends, may God bless you, may he protect you from all evil, and may he bring you to everlasting life. Amen. I saw him ride over seven streams, over waters wide and green. I saw him walk in empty lands until he passed away. Into the shadows of the north, I saw him then no more. The north wind. Son of David